everyone. I hope you're really well this week. Welcome to another episode of the Motherkind podcast with me, your host, Zoe Blasky, where each week I chat about all things motherhood and well-being. My mission with this podcast is to help you reconnect to you, to feel happier, more joyful, calmer, and more alive, whatever that looks like for you. So maybe this podcast is going to inspire you to look at your health and self-care. Maybe it's thinking about your career and making work work for you. Maybe it's looking at your relationships or your relationship with yourself and finally addressing that inner critic and making a commitment to being kinder to yourself. So I chat to all sorts of well-being experts and game changers to help you become your healthiest, happiest and most alive version of you because that is what I think is the most inspiring thing to become for our children. This week I wanted to tell you about an app I've recently discovered and I'm really happy because they are now supporting the podcast. It's called Family Album. It's absolutely free on the App Store and has over 5 million users all over the world. So I was looking for a way to share photos of Jessie and my growing bump with mine and Guy's family, but without clogging up their phones with messages. And that was totally safe and secure. And this app is perfect. It's free, as I said, it's also ad free. And what my family have been loving the most is the one second movies, which the app automatically creates for you. My granny, who is 87, says she cries every time she sees one. It's so sweet. I highly recommend you check it out. Search family album wherever you get your apps from. Now onto this week's episode. Hi everyone and welcome to this episode of the Motherkind podcast. It is with Rachel Brayton, who you might know better as Yoga Girl. I'm sure you know about Rachel and you probably follow her on Instagram. She is an incredible yoga teacher, entrepreneur. She's also a New York Times bestselling author and of course a mum to the absolutely gorgeous Leia Luna. So Rachel has a new book out called To Love and Let Go, a memoir of love, loss and gratitude. I was lucky enough to get a pre-order of it and it is absolutely beautiful. We talk about it a lot in the interview. It's out here on the 31st of October, but you can pre-order it now on Amazon, which I have a feeling quite a few of you'll be doing after hearing about what the book entails in this interview. So Rachel and I have a really wide ranging conversation as I often do with my incredible guests, but listening to it this morning and just reflecting on it, it's really about two things. It's about healing and motherhood which if you know if you listen to this podcast those are my two most favorite passionate topics that I have in the whole world so to be able to chat about those two things with someone like Rachel who has done so much healing and has so much wisdom and so much humility and humor as well was just fantastic I hope you really really enjoy this episode if you did as ever please do pop home to iTunes rate and review and head over to Instagram motherkind underscore Zoe where we continue the conversation here it is Well, Rachel, welcome to the podcast. To say it's an honor is a bit of an understatement, to be honest with you. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're welcome. So I'm an avid listener of your podcast and I love the way that I'd be driving around in frantic London traffic and you often open 
with a calming meditation or some way that can we connect to ourselves. And it just instantly calms me, grounds me, gives me space. And so you've kindly offered to do the same on my podcast is just to open this, this conversation that we're going to hold with a meditation. Yeah. So would you be open to leading us just for a couple of minutes into one of your beautiful heart opening meditations? For sure, for sure. Whenever I can, I like to infuse a little bit of grounding into everything I do. There's never a moment when we don't need it. So, of course, happy to. So, I mean, if there is a comfortable place to sit down and close your eyes, I know when we listen to podcasts, we don't always have that ability. But if we do, just so we can ground and find a space to feel safe to close the eyes and soften a little bit. And then maybe opening by just tuning inward and beginning to check in with the breath. So some days our breath is moving a little bit faster through the body. Some days it's a little bit tense and some days we naturally arrive to that deep and connected breath. But opening by just checking in with however the breath is showing up for us as we are right now. So without feeling like we have to change or alter anything, but Just noticing that flow of the breath as it moves in through the nose and out through the nose. And the beautiful thing about just witnessing the breath is the more we practice that, the gentler we'll be able to arrive at that place where the breath is naturally a little bit deeper and a little bit fuller. So next cycle of breath, if you want to start pulling that breath just a little bit deeper down toward the bottom of the lungs. And feeling for a moment there the expansion of the belly at the very top of the breath in. And then gently noticing that action in reverse, how the belly just contracts a little bit as you begin to exhale and then softly releasing all the breath back out through the nose. So we can do that just a few rounds. Full breath in, pulling the inhale down to the bottom of the belly. And taking a moment to feel that expansion there. And as you exhale, noticing the breath releasing from the body again. Let's do one more full breath just like that. Inhale. And exhale. And then perhaps taking this moment just to set a little intention for the next hour or so. Or just an intention, something we'd like to connect to or feel into for this next moment. So perhaps something we want to invite into our lives or a little quality we'd like to listen to or listen from. And we'll take one more full breath and this time directing the breath into the center of the heart. So full breath in here. And at the top of the breath, take a moment to pause. So just holding the breath in. And then let's open the mouth and loud and clear. We can let that go. So exhale everything out. And then gently blinking the eyes back open. How are you feeling? (laughs) Oh, I'm glad we did that. I was nervous. I was nervous. Oh, you were? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I was nervous. And I feel my heart stopped thumping in my chest now. And I I feel more grounded in my body. So thank you. Hmm, That's a good feeling. Yeah, me too. I was feeling a little bit scattered. Usually I do these little mini meditations for myself, <laughs> you know, just to get that chance to center a little bit. We all need that. For sure. So we're here to chat about this 
incredible book that you have just released into the world. It's not out in the UK yet. It will be when we air this podcast. So I was lucky enough to get an advanced copy and I've read it over the last couple of days. It took my breath away, I have to say, from the opening was just absolutely beautiful. And I cried and I nodded and I resonated. It really moved me. It really moved me. And I was reflecting just on the courage that it takes to pour your heart into something for the public. And I just wanted to thank you for that because I can only imagine for myself the fear that that might bring up, the vulnerability that that might bring up. And it's helped me so much. So thank you for writing it. Thank you for sharing that. I'm so glad it resonated with you and that, yeah, it's been such a challenging thing for me actually now that I'm receiving feedback about the book, because when I wrote it, I didn't have anybody in mind. (laughs) You know, it was such a deeply personal and intimate process writing this book that it literally wasn't until I embarked on the first leg of our book tour and we had all these events planned and all these things that we had kind of laid out for a really long time that I knew was coming. And then I sat there on stage at this theater and the moderator asked me, you know, the very first question about the book. And I kind of looked out into the crowd and I was like, oh, I have to talk about this now. Because it was really such a personal thing, this whole process, that it's not until now that I've actually realized that, oh, you know, it's really out there now. So it's a beautiful thing, but also terrifying at the same time. How do you hold that fear of, I mean, you have put every trauma, every challenge, every coping behavior, it's all in there. How are you holding yourself as you're talking now so publicly with, you know, millions of people? How do you hold yourself through this time of vulnerability? I mean, I practice that every day and all the time. I think having that daily practice, I do it through the podcast. I do it through writing, through social media, in my retreats and trainings and groups. You know, I get to practice that all the time. It's not like a huge transition, but The moments that I've been in a big public event and had a really, you know, hard question or really emotional question asked, everyone who's sitting there listening in the crowd, they're all there because they've moved through something really similar. So I haven't yet come across that feeling of feeling like I've overshared or like it's too much or too vulnerable because it's just been this very sacred, supported setting all the time. So actually, so far, it's been really easy to share. That's beautiful to hear. And you talk about, we're going to get into the book, but you talk about actually how through sharing what you have, you felt like you've really grown from followers to this community that's held you through all of this. Yeah. Yeah. I had a hard time already in the beginning. I mean, before all of this happened and before yeah, the events that led me to write the book before any of that transpired, I had this aversion to the idea of following. I really dislike that term. I really don't like the idea of fans or followers or the idea of being an influencer. I think it's so, uh, so superficial and not at all a role that I want to have at all. So in a way, when all of these really heavy things started happening and I started sharing them, it gave me this blessing of transitioning everything into a real community because suddenly I had an exchange Right. I think in that regular setting, you're just speaking into the ether, (laughs) you know, hoping people will like what you say. But then now all of a sudden I had this need. I needed to be reminded that I wasn't alone, where I needed advice. I needed support. And I received that. So it became this two way dialogue instead of just this online 
thing. Social media, it's, it's such a weird place to be. Yeah. And I feel like that vulnerability that you've created through your community is so evident when you interact with it, what people share back with you and the support you offer. It's really beautiful, actually, to witness, because as you say, it's rare it's not always that way with things like Instagram. So I wanted to open, we're definitely going to get into the huge grief and losses and this year of trauma that you had. But something that really touched my heart, the first thing that made me sob in the book was when you describe one of your first big awakenings and you were at a cacao ceremony and the facilitator who is called a shaman said to you, it's your life's purpose to take the accumulated pain of your ancestors, carry it on your shoulders and transform it to light throughout your lifetime. Your daughter will be the first in your lineage not to take the pain on. And I just burst into tears because I have really similar background to you, really similar from the dysfunction and the suicide attempts and the traumas. And I feel exactly the same about what I'm trying to do. And I know so many people that listen to the podcast listen because they want to be that transitional character too. And I wondered if we could start there. What is the pain that you are trying to transform or you are transforming? And how have you done that? It's a big question, but it would be really interesting to start there, I think. Yeah, I think this is sort of the theme of my life, <laughs> if I were to pick just one. And I think it's such an important inquiry to delve into. And I think it's amazing that it's not just me alone sitting with these thoughts, but I keep encountering, you know, not just women, but men also who are doing this sort of work when it comes to ancestral trauma and ancestral healing, which is so life-changing. It's so interesting because I had this conversation just a few days ago with my, with a person in my family, because when I was, I was trying to figure out how old I was. I think I was 12 or maybe 13 and I was in school and we had this assignment in school. I can't remember what subject it was, but it was about something philosophical around, you had to write an essay around why evil things happen in the world or bad things happen in the world. Our philosophical take at that really young age of why are there murderers? Why is there war? Why are there terrible things? What do you think it comes from? And I remember sitting down writing this essay, feeling crystal clear, like there was an actual answer that my teacher was looking for. And I wrote this essay about ancestral trauma at 12 years old, where I wrote about heavy things coming our way and then growing up with that sense of heaviness and all of that trauma that has happened to us and then unconsciously repeating the pattern that we were exposed to when we were children. And I wrote this whole big thing out. And then I remember my teacher didn't understand what I was saying. I remember my teacher said, oh, you didn't really understand the question. You didn't understand what we were looking for. He was looking for something different. And I got to reread this essay a few years ago. And I was just like, man, at 12 years old, I knew, like I had this knowing that this is how it works, that at some point we have to break the cycle. And it was so clear to me then. And then it would take me, of course, you know, many years and this whole journey of different things to get to that first place where I got to have that very intimate experience through this shamanic ritual, seeing very clearly the traumas that had happened in my own lineage from, you know, my great, 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 great grandmother, and then her growing up and then passing that on to her children and then them growing up and then passing it on and witnessing really clearly that cycle and how it was so crystal clear that no one could have possibly done anything different. 
And for me, that realization of there was no evil there, right? There was no bad intentions. There was nothing wrong with my parents that they were terrible or, you know, because I had this idea growing up that they wronged me somehow. I was exposed to all of this trauma and, and all these terrible things. And I had this resentment toward them because they should have done differently. And then when I was faced with the clarity of this, that of course they couldn't have done it differently because they are just repeating what they know. They're just unconsciously repeating what happened to them. And then their parents did that. And then their parents did that. And it's just this cycle that's, I don't know how long it's been there, but it's none of our faults, not one single person's fault. And that realization for me was this massive, massive release that I didn't have to hold them responsible anymore in that sense. And it just changed my whole viewpoint of feeling resentful for them because they couldn't have done anything different. And I realized that the person who can is me because I am the one sitting here now with these cards dealt, with this level of clarity, with this level of support. I don't know, somehow that there's been a little bit more of that conscious evolution almost passed down to me, thanks to all of that moving through their lives. And that I don't have to be the one to pass this on to my daughter. I can end the cycle because I'm aware of it now. And my mom wasn't and my dad wasn't. It's so powerful, isn't it? And I love in the book, the words that you describe, the compassion. And I can feel the love for your family as you write those words in the book. You know, you say it was not their fault. They could have done no different. And I'm the same, you know, having that realization was incredibly freeing. Does it feel like a heavy responsibility sometimes to have been told this at a young age. I should have mentioned when you were told that about your daughter, you were, were you 19 or 20? You were nowhere near becoming a mother, were you? So now you are a mother. Does it feel like a responsibility or does it feel like this is just your way of life? It doesn't feel like a responsibility. No, no. I mean, I'm very aware of of our relationship, the relationship I have with my daughter, and most of all, the responsibility I have for my own emotional work. So that to not confuse, you know, my own frustration with something about her or my own sadness with something that's happening, you know, if she's having a difficult day or if I'm having a difficult day so that I can really separate that, which is something I think it's really hard to do as a parent. If we're having a really heavy day, not feeling good, you know, it's easy to take that out almost in frustration around our kids because our kids are the beginning and end of our whole lives, basically. So I am really mindful to do my work and that I do the yoga and that I meditate and that I get to release my emotions and that I get to show up for her in the best way that I can, you know, which doesn't mean that I'm perfect. Of course not, but it doesn't feel like I'm fighting some uphill battle either. I really think that we are destined to be here the way we are right now. So not like I have to, you know, manipulate the universe in a way to like keep trauma away right now. I just feel like we are very equipped to be where we are, if that makes any sense. It does. And you talk about how actually having your daughter, Leia Luna, you wrote the book after you'd had her and how in some ways having her enabled you to do this other immense healing is palpable as you read the book, The Healing. Let's get into, because it's such an incredible story of grief and this year that you had of trauma. And I wondered if you could tell the story of when you were in the airport and you suddenly became overcome with this immense pain in your stomach. And that's how the book opens. And it's one of the most beautiful pieces of writing. I have to tell you, it's incredible. 
Can you tell the story for our listeners? Yeah, yeah, sure. I was uh, on my way traveling from Aruba to our neighbor island Bonaire, which is a really, really like a puddle hop away. It's super close. And I had come out of this kind of challenging couple of months where we had been working really hard and I wasn't feeling super well. So I had just been to the acupuncturist the day before and he had given me a really particular kind of vitamin C, like vitamin C crystals that I was supposed to take a little bit of every day. And we were waiting for this flight. And then I had a glass of orange juice and I put my vitamin C in there, downed it, stood up and then collapsed on the floor. And it was this inexplicable stomach pain. And I hadn't given birth before this, so I couldn't compare it. But now I can say, I mean, with ease, giving birth was like a walk in the park compared to this kind of pain that I felt. And then the paramedics came and because I had just taken this vitamin C. I was so sure that something was reacting in my stomach because I had taken these vitamins. It was just the only explanation that I had. So uh, they ended up giving me like an antacid thinking I had acid or something in my stomach and couldn't find anything else and just said that this will pass eventually. So I decided to sort of soldier on and continue with this journey. We were on our way to a retreat and the idea of not going or the idea of, you know, going to the hospital instead of making it to this retreat was just not in my head, like an impossibility, basically. It was about eight and a half hours that this pain lasted all throughout this trip. We had a layover somewhere and then we finally made it to Bonaire, went straight to the emergency room and spent hours there in this agony and they couldn't figure out what was wrong. They did ultrasounds, the doctors couldn't figure out what was wrong with me and then decided in the end to open me up that I had to go through surgery to find out what was happening in my stomach. At the end of this very, very, I mean, it was really like this dark night of the soul. It felt like almost like an initiation of some sort, like I was just sitting in fire for eight hours. And finally the pain went away. It was this very palpable moment of the pain lifting And my phone rang and I found out that my best friend had just passed away and she had spent those same eight hours in a different kind of agony or a similar kind of pain, but in another country, yeah, far away. So looking at it now, I mean, then I couldn't connect the dots. It took a long time for me to to realize the synchronicity of the timing of all of this, but it was really like something... I had this thought, like, I have to write this down because I'm not going to believe, I'm going to (laughs) forget that this actually happened, that this was actually truth. And it became the very beginning of the book. I mean, it is just so remarkable, isn't it? You know, and you talk about the book about how connected you were as soul sisters and that she chose to leave through you in some way. It's remarkable. You know, was this a month before your wedding or a couple of months before your wedding? Yes. And she was supposed to be a bridesmaid in the wedding. And we had this big trip coming up. We had so many things. We've had such a big year. We had just had a really beautiful trip together just 10 days before this happened and then lots of things planned. So it was just this out of the blue, you know, complete shock. What did you do with that grief? What was that process of grieving? You then went on to have two more painful losses in your life. How did you process that grief? Because I had this very strange situation of being hospitalized at the time. So it turned out after I had the surgery, they found out I had a 
ruptured appendix and that was what the pain was. But I was in the hospital bed and I, I couldn't move because I had this surgery. I couldn't stand up straight. I couldn't go to the bathroom on my own. I was just completely immobilized. I think my normal response always to crises is that I fix things. That's kind of how I grew up as the fixer and the solver and the savior of the family in a way. So I'm the kind of person I almost thrive in a really terrible situation. I can be really clear and from A to Z, you know, I would have been the person to fly in and organize the funeral and take care of her whole family. And I would have put all of these logistical things in place to do instead of feel, because that's my way normally. And then now I was in this hospital bed and I wasn't allowed to travel, couldn't get on a plane, couldn't stand up, couldn't do anything. And what happened was that I had to just lie there and feel that pain which was, you know, the most excruciating, awful, you know, there were moments that I, I didn't really know if I was going to make it through. It was so, so, so horrible, but I had no other choice. And now I can see it was thanks to that, that I was able to, it was almost like it accelerated the healing in a way, because I had to sit with what I was feeling instead of escape it by doing things or fixing things or continuing to move. I guess. And there'll be people listening to this podcast who will have had a big loss recently. They will be in that grief. What did you learn? What would you pass on to them from your process? Yeah. I mean, every situation is so, so, so different. So I think if we find ourselves in that place where we can't be still, because that also happens after moving through something this hard and this horrible, the feeling is if I step in to feel all of this, like I'm not going to make it through. I'm going to drown in this sorrow. So I think it's a really sensitive thing. We can't all immerse ourselves in the pain that's there because for some of us, it's too much or it's too much too soon. You know, we need little drops of feeling the pain over a really long period of time. And that's how we heal to the extent that we can create a safe space for us to be in the pain and to feel the feelings and to not soldier on and just tell everyone we're fine and kind of that we have this idea of moving on and that we do that as fast as possible. But to the extent that we can slow down and let ourselves be in that pain, it's really the way to heal. But it's, again, this very, very individual thing. I mean, my mom had a big loss when she was that same age that I was when my best friend passed away. And it took her 15 years to start feeling the extent of that pain. So it's different for everyone. And I think the kinder we can be to ourselves when we move through that process, the, the better it's going to be. You know, we often have this idea that we need to move on. And I don't really think that there is such a thing to just move on one day. I don't think that's how grief works. Mm. We love to put a timetable on things, don't we? <laughs> And, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I remember after, uh, I can't remember how many months after or weeks after the first time I saw my dad after this had happened. And he's not a very touchy feely type of vulnerable guy. He kind of tapped me on the back, like gave me this kind of bro hug. And then he said, you know, how is the griefing process? Is it going well? <laughs> And I was like, yes, dad, I'm getting all A's, you know, I'm, I'm nailing it. Thank you so much. <laughs> you know, because I think we all look at it so differently, but it almost is as if we're supposed to get through it. And then once we have, it's like, we're done. The rest of the world expects us to be back to normal. But for anyone who has been through immense loss, we know that there's no such thing as going back to what it was before. It's forming this whole new life around what has happened to us. And then putting ourselves back together in a way and then continuing with this brand new life, not moving on or for things to return the way they were. 
And did having your daughter, did that deepen this grief? How did that intersect with these losses and these huge traumas that you had experienced? Was that healing or did it give rise to more unhealed parts? I mean, it was both. I think it it showed me really clearly the areas that I still needed to work on. It sort of brought everything to this peak in a sense, but it was also this very calming process for me. I think becoming pregnant was, yeah, it gave me something bigger than myself. And I think when we have moved through a lot of painful things, the tendency is that we become, I don't want to use the word self-absorbed, but we become very focused around around ourselves, right? Because everything is really hard and we feel really sensitive around new situations. And I think it's easy that we almost become isolated with that pain that we've been through. And for me, becoming pregnant was this light bulb of there's something more than me and my story, right? There's a continuation of all of this. There's something that's just bigger than everything that's happened to me. And it it felt very purposeful to be blessed with that transition when the time that it came. You talk a lot in the book about your relationship with your own mother, which I really appreciated because a lot of our stories, my story and your story in, in that way are very similar. And mm. I'm wondering, what I sometimes hear is how seeing our mother's relationship with our daughters can be either quite healing and also very triggering. I know I've had that experience. You know, my mum is quite different with my daughter than she was with me, having been on her Mm. own healing. What's your relationship like with your mum now? And what is her relationship like with your daughter? I mean, it's really, really beautiful right now. (laughs) I am very, (laughs) you know, of course we go through cycles of things being challenging and, and things like that too. But for me, writing the book was such a necessary thing to do. And it was almost like I had to tell my story my way. There are pieces in that book that I knew when I was writing them that they might hurt her, that they might surprise her. And it was almost like I had to go through that process in the most loving way possible, but where I could share my story without filtering it for her in a way, because that's been my pattern my whole life, making myself a little smaller or being very scared to disrupt her or scared to disappoint her. And it was almost like writing the book brought me a sense of total calm. And I think she can sense that too. And because we have been doing this work so intensely throughout all of this, she's the best grandmother for my daughter. Unbelievable. She's the only person that we have that I can, um, like we left for this book tour for a whole week and uh, left the baby home with her. She's the only person that I trust to do that. So I think if we hadn't done that work, probably I would have some sort of resentment there too of seeing how how easy it is between her and my daughter. But now I'm just so grateful. Then I can kind of see that her and I, we had to go through our struggles for us to get to this place now where we have, where there's just love. And it's love without me feeling jealous that my daughter gets a different kind of love than what I got. Because I can see now that the love is the same. It's just the circumstances were really, really different. Yeah, I feel the same. I feel grateful most days that my mom is sober now and is able to have a relationship with my daughter. I feel grateful Mm. most days for that. It wasn't always going to be that way as my mind projected it, you know, so. Yeah. But then I also think, I don't know, sometimes I think about this because we are in a different place. 
and I can talk to my mom and hear her side of the story of, you know, we have this generation now of people like you and me who are doing this kind of work. And then we look at our parents and like, oh, and they did it that way. But it's also because life was very different a generation ago. We had a totally different societal climate. I think we had very different tools. They had very different tools then compared to what's available to us now. So it's almost like our mothers had to go through the process of that kind of energetic life to give us the opportunity to be here with these tools now. So I think it's important that we're really forgiving and kind to the prior generations too, that it's our responsibility to lift the resentment or any heaviness that sits there as well. I absolutely agree with you. And I recently wrote my mum a 20-page thank you letter. Well, I just realised that it was a miracle knowing how she felt on the inside, very similar to what you described about your mum in the book. And yet she got up every day, she got us to school. It was a profound realisation for me. Yeah, and I wrote this thank you and she collapsed Mm. on the floor and sobbed, she said, because she said it was such a release. She said she didn't realise she was holding on to so much guilt. It was very, very healing, very healing. But it's so true. It's, uh, I mean, we will never know the extent of what our parents did for us, even because we all have different levels of hardships with our parents, but we will never know. (laughs) And I can even see that with my daughter now. It's so hard to get this right. The amount of love and energy and time and care that it takes, you know, every single day. And then imagining doing that with four kids all alone with no money and no support and moving through trauma at the same time. I mean, it's, I will never know. I cannot imagine it, as you say. Are you the mother that you thought you would be? No. (laughs) Oh my God. I wish I was. I thought I would be so much more relaxed. (laughs) Tell us some of your insecurities and the things you're, because that's so helpful for me to hear. (laughs) I thought I would be so much more relaxed. The first year with her was really hard. It was really hard for two main reasons. One was that the moment she was born, I realized how fragile she was and all the fears I ever had in my life about losing people, you know, knowing that like, you know, waiting for the other shoe to drop, having had so much loss, it was became wrapped up into this tiny little fragile being. So I think for the first year of her life, I spent so much time in agony, you know, terrified that she was going to die, terrified she was going to get sick, terrified she was going to fall you know, I was really reliving these nightmares of all this terror. And I know, you know, it's totally common and every mother feels that way, but also because anytime I voiced that fear to anyone, people told me, oh, but every mom feels that way. It's normal. And I think what I was going through actually wasn't normal. I think it was not healthy. And I kind of wish I would have asked for help a little bit sooner because it really was making motherhood terrifying and and really hard. Also, the second thing is that it I am a controlling person, so I am not as relaxed as a mom as I would have envisioned myself to be, at least that very first year. I was very, very uh, serious about, you know, her routine and wanting her to, I wanted to have everything perfect around. I didn't really leave any space for things to just unfold. So I think those two things combined actually made it really hard, especially that first year. And I think if we have a second one, I can imagine I will be... (laughs) a little more relaxed and easygoing. At least I I would hope so. I think this is so helpful for me to hear because it's easy for me to put someone like you on a pedestal and think, you know, because of all the work that you've done, that you would breeze through this. So what did some of those 
anxieties look like? Were you having intrusive thoughts? Were you struggling to sleep, to leave her? Can you just give us a flavor of how that was manifesting for you, some of those fears? Yeah. I mean, it was so immediate and I wasn't expecting it either because with every loss that I've ever had, usually the year following that loss was really, really hard because everyone who left the room, I would envision them dying somehow. Like every time my husband went to work, I would in my mind kind of see that fear of maybe something happening to him, but I wouldn't voice it. And then as time passed, all of that would go away and I would go back to this normal space where I trusted that it's okay for people to go to the grocery store. They're not going to necessarily die. But then with her, it was immediate. As soon as she was born, I had almost this sense of surprise that she survived. Like, oh, like I was waiting for her to not be alive for the entire pregnancy, but I didn't know it consciously. So I think that fear was so, 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 so big that I would stand and hover over her crib all night long. I kind of made my husband get all these complicated monitoring systems because I wanted to be able to see her. If I could see her on a monitor at night, then I would allow myself to go to bed because I could see her breathing. And she's the kind of kid, she's like a weird kid. I don't know if I'm going to be grateful for this later, but she doesn't sleep well in this inner room with us still to this day. She needs her own space. She's like a very independent individual child. So from six months, she had her own room because that's the only way she slept through the night. I don't know if I'm disturbed. Maybe I was hovering over her so much that she was feeling all disturbed, but it was just this stress. Now I can look back and see the level of stress to walk around with that kind of fear all day and all night long. It's not healthy for me. It's not healthy for her. It's not healthy for my relationship. And I really wish I would have asked for some help around that, or at least spoken about it and taken it a little bit more seriously than just go, oh, everyone feels that way, because I don't think it's necessarily true to that extent. What sort of help do you wish you'd have asked for? Because there'll be people listening, nodding. I know I can almost hear the nods of people going, I feel the same (laughs) way. What would you have done? What do you do again if it happens again, as you say? If it happens again, therapy works. You know, having a good therapist, counselor, psychologist, anyone to talk to, to voice that fear, I think is really, really important. For me, the realization actually came, and I don't like to share this a lot because it's so woo-woo, but (laughs) I actually had an astrologer help me immensely. And it was one of those things, it felt like this, almost like an intervention from God somehow, because I was getting my chart read by this astrologer, and I didn't really believe in astrology. I'm still kind of, I float in and out, of still learning a lot about it, but she was reading my chart and then she was reading my daughter's chart and she was telling us about our long lives together and about how we're destined to be together from lifetimes ago and what she's teaching me. And then I kind of asked this little question, just like slipped out of my mouth. And I asked, so we're going to live long lives together. She's going to be safe. And this astrologer dropped what she was doing and she looked at me and she said, why would you ask me such a ridiculous question? Of course, of course. And then I started bawling. I started crying and all of these fears that I had been holding on to for so long, I shared with her and she immediately cut me off and said, Hey, this is not normal. You should not be having these feelings about death, this panic, or this almost anticipation of something happening to your daughter. This is way too heavy. This is not at all what your chart looks like. It's also not not what your lives should be. You know, you need to talk about this. You need to feel safe around the fact that she's going to live a really long life and that you guys are meant to be here together and that you're safe as a mom. She's safe as a daughter and you guys are, yeah, are safe in this world. 
and realizing just through that interaction of how heavy that was. And I've been kind of walking around all day like, this is fine. This is fine. This is normal. This is normal. It's not normal to walk around all day thinking about whether or not your child is going to live. It shouldn't be normal. Now that I'm talking about it a lot, I keep meeting people who are like, I felt that way too. And I think it makes life really, really hard to manage. It's hard as it is to manage a newborn, to be a mom. So finding a way to feel safe in that relationship, I think needs to be a priority. So if we don't, then I think it's imperative that we find someone to talk to. And something that ended up really helping me is she gave me this exercise that I did every day. I still do to this day, not every day because I don't have the same fear present every day anymore, but every time I put her to bed, she said, so as a mom, you know, you have a certain set of responsibilities, but you are not God, right? So we hold our children's hands when we cross the street, we make sure they don't burn themselves on the stove. Like we have responsibilities as mothers, but we are not God. There is a certain level to this at a certain point, we have to let go. Like we do not control the entire world. You are not queen of natural disasters. Like you cannot control everything that happens in your child's life. You can be a mother and that's it. So for the rest, you have to trust that your children, that they have their own angels, the same way that we all have our own angels that keep us safe. So she said, when you put her to bed at night, envision her angels hovering over her crib, her own support system of spirits, ancestors, God, whatever you believe in, and hand over responsibility to them. And then I did that as this very meditative practice. Every night putting her to bed, I would envision her own angels, her own little network of support that she has, you know, energetically, emotionally, spiritually, to keep her safe. And I would kind of speak out loud, you know, I hand over responsibility. And then I would go to bed and I would sleep. And it changed at least my mindset around what I can and what I can't control. And it was a really, really helpful thing for me. Mm. And it's beautiful because it's a letting go, isn't it? Which of course is the whole theme of the book and what we've been talking about to love and let go. And it's, and it's so, a hard thing to do. <laughs> oh, it's so hard because I feel like I love Jessie, my daughter, who's a little bit older than your daughter, but I just love her so much. It brings up all my control, as you were saying, all my fear. What else have you let go of through motherhood? Is it a daily practice for you? <sighs> I mean, letting go of control is a big one. The fear piece was a big one. And now... I don't have that on my mind anymore. Like death is not a thing that's present in my head every day anymore, which I think is a big part of that letting go. But control, <laughs> realizing that I can plan my day out. I can, you know, have this idea of what I want my life to be. I can work to put all these things into place. But at the end of the day, I have a tiny little two and a half year old <laughs> who is in charge of everything in a sense, you know, because her mood, her energy, how she feels, that's how we roll with our day. And if I want to push through life the way I want it to be, I'm going to have this resistance all day, every day. So with her, it's this constant kind of sitting back going, okay, well, what's next, right? Can I just sit with that space of not knowing what the day is going to be, not knowing what tomorrow is going to be and trust that everything is going to work out anyway? Because it does, right? It usually does. <laughs> I asked my audience before this interview, what do you want me to ask Rachel? And I got a flood of questions, but one, there was a real theme, and it's about this actually, was how a lot of people want to know, how do you 
be the present, aware person and mother that you are, and yet run such a huge community. You know, I think you've got four businesses, haven't you? You've got the largest yoga studio in the Caribbean. How do you do that? So I can hear you're talking about going with the flow, and yet you are this incredibly successful CEO now. You know, you are out there in service and giving so much to us all. How do you hold the two? That's a very good question that I'm trying to answer every day. (laughs) Yeah, I wish I had like, here's the recipe because I got it nailed down. I mean, I don't, I still struggle, but I did learn something very important and it wasn't at all what I planned. So a good example of this is I was pregnant while we were building our studio here in Aruba. And I had this vision of merging family with work, you know, like work and the studio is going to be this place where my daughter grows up. And I literally designed together with the architect, my office as this big space with a door in the middle that I could close if I wanted to, where I had a baby room connected to my office. So we had a crib in there, a little diaper station, you know, toys, and this whole beautifully created divine baby room connected to my office, because I really had this idea that... I'm going to be at work, breastfeeding. She's going to grow up here. I'm going to take meetings and then she's going to be there. We're going to da-da-da-da. And then I realized really, really, really early on that that was, at least for me personally, the worst possible thing. The stupidest, the stupidest decision that I really ever made. Because having her present during the moments where I need to be present with other things, it's the most stressful thing I could ever imagine. So if I'm going to be in a meeting, I need to be in that meeting and be fully present with what I need to get done. Right. And I can't do that if I have my daughter there because she's always going to be their priority. So I had these months in the beginning where I ended up not really getting anything done at work and also feeling really torn that I wasn't present enough with her. So I decided, I think just a few months in that I'm not going to do it this way. I'm going to really, really separate my day so that if I have two hours of work today and that's all I get, I'm going to make those two hours the most productive ever. And by making sure that she's with her dad. And then when I'm with her, I don't want to have my computer there. I don't want to have meetings. I don't want to have my phone. I don't want to have interviews. It's just me and her so that I never feel torn between where my attention should go. And for me, that's really been the key that I let myself have undisturbed time to work, which means I can be more present as a mom when I'm home with her instead of trying to do everything at the same time. Thank you for sharing that. So helpful. I was, I'm nodding because I work from home actually, and my daughter will be at home with our nanny. And I'm just going through this right now, figuring out what these boundaries look like. Cause oh, I, I so haven't hard. got it. I have not got it right either. I've not got it right either. Oh, but it's so hard. And then you sit up, you know, you end up doing the work you're doing, but then you feel guilty. Like you should be over there with her. Right. <laughs> so so I, I find it if I leave and even if it's just an hour and I leave and I go somewhere else to do what I have to do, I'd rather do that than spending three hours half-assing it. Yeah. Very wise words. Thank you. That's helped me a lot this afternoon. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so at the end of every interview, I ask people the same question, which is if you could give just one gift to all the mothers in the world and mothers in its broadest sense, you know, mother hearts, people who are yet to become mothers, people who mother in other ways than their biological children. What would you give all the mothers in the world? What would your one gift be, Rachel? I think the space to talk about what comes our way. You know, I think the embodiment of community, which I think so many of us are looking for these days, 
I think our lives really aren't built around community in the way that we should have it. I think we are tribal people. In the end of the day, we want to sit in circle and share and have help and feel supported. And I find that for, especially for mothers, we tend to isolate ourselves a little bit and like, we're the only ones who don't have it figured out when actually no one has it figured out. And we're just looking around to see if there's anyone who feels the same way we do when truth is we all do. So I think the gift of sitting in circle with other mothers, of sharing with other mothers and being able to vent and cry cry and feel and be reminded that we're not alone, I think is the most important thing. And I think you do it so well with this podcast and any way that we can invite that into our lives, I think is going to be really, really, really helpful. Well, thank you. That's beautiful. And I know this conversation will have served that purpose too. So thank you for your honesty and your time. I deeply appreciate it. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you. So that's it. Thank you for listening to the episode. I hope you really enjoyed it. And if you did, please do leave a review on iTunes. It does make a massive difference to the number of mums that we can reach with this content. If you were listening to that episode, thinking about one of your friends, that they might benefit from what we were chatting about, then just tag them in on Instagram. My bio will include the link to the podcast so they can find it really easily from there. People often tell me they're desperate to share it with their friends. So if that's you, then please do. I feel like the guests that we have on the podcast, their wisdom just deserves to be heard far and wide. So help me make that happen. I'd be very grateful. And also, if you want to send me any comments or thoughts about the episode, then please pop over onto Instagram at motherkind underscore Zoe. And also just to let you know about my coaching. So I do work one-on-one with mums on my program, which is a three-month program called Reconnect to You. So if you want to work with me on taking your power back in any area of your life, then please do get in touch. Just drop me an email, zoe at motherkind.co or look on the website, www.motherkind.co. That's it. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Take care.